All right, good morning. All right, good to see everybody. Super Bowl Sunday, big game today. All right, let's dive into our message this morning. I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes as we always provide message notes. We've got everything for you, verses, points, fill in the blanks, you name it. I want to encourage you to not just fill it out, but plug into a community group. We just launched community groups about a week ago. This is a great way for you to get to know people. All you got to do is show up to a group. You'll never be put on the spot to talk, to pray, to do nothing like that. And each group just talks about the message. So you've already heard it today. Go talk about it during the week and meet some new people. All right. We're in a series through the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 4. We're going to be closing, closing out the chapter today. Last week we looked at the Samaritan woman, her encounter with Jesus. So today we're going to be in John 4, uh, 46 to 54. Let me read the story for you, <clears throat> and then we'll dig into it together. So he came again to Cain in Galilee, speaking of Jesus, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So when you come to the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, sometimes it's difficult to piece things together. It's kind of difficult to harmonize the four gospels. Many scholars, theologians, take the Matthean um, priority, which means they take the book of Matthew as the first gospel written, and they build the gospels or the the sequence, right, maybe kind of a, a chronology based on Matthew's gospel. Each gospel writer had a distinct purpose for why they were writing their gospel. The gospels, as we know, are not biographies. Really, they're not even a chronology of Jesus' life. Um, The gospel of John, I mean, really um, deals with, like most of John, deals with the last 30 days of his life. Now, when you look at the gospels, it's somewhat chronological, but not entirely. When you look at John's gospel, there are some events that are missing because John's gospel is largely unique in its material. So the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of fill in the details. Let me give the context of this story in verses 43 to 45. Let me read it for you. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So we know, because we're walking through the Gospel of John together, we looked at John chapter 4, the first, I think, I don't know, 
first 42 verses, something like that. Jesus spent two days, he had just spent two days in Samaria in a city by the name of Sychar. We looked at this story last week. He, he met a woman at Jacob's well. He engages with her. He finds out about her past. And, well, he, he knows about her five-filled marriages. He enters into a conversation with her. And what he does, it's, it's beautiful and it's masterful. He moves the conversation from the physical, which was about water. She's drawing water. He asked for a drink. She said, well, you're a Jew. I'm a woman, a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews didn't live on the same block. They didn't like each other. So she was really shocked by it. And what Jesus does, he takes the conversation to a whole nother level. He moves it from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to Jacob's well, the water she's drawing out, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And what Jesus was doing, he was using water as a metaphor for spiritual life. He was speaking of living water that can satisfy her eternal thirst. The reality is, the Bible is so clear that there is a creator God and that he made you in his image. You are made in the image of God, which means you are worthy, which you are made on purpose, for a purpose. God knows you, God loves you, he has a plan for your life. Take it to the bank. That's what the Bible says. But every single person who is living and breathing, if they have a pulse, there's a longing that only Christ can fill. They're, they're, they're only Christ can satisfy the deep longings of the human soul. And he's speaking to this woman about spiritual thirst and he can satisfy her eternal thirst. And we know how the story ends. She leaves her water jar, I think symbolic of her empty life, she rushes into the town and she tells all the people, she says, can this be the Christ? The Jewish people had been waiting thousands of years for the coming Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, this messianic king. And the people in the city of Sychar, they pour out of the town. And the Bible says that many of them believed in Christ. Some believed because of her testimony. Others believed because they encountered Christ for themselves. The Bible says Jesus stayed with them for two days. So for two days, he's with these new believers. Can you imagine the conversations, the interaction, the mealtime? Can you imagine what Jesus was telling them for two days? Absolutely mind-blowing. Then he returns to Galilee. Now, we know he grew up in Galilee in a small podunk town called Nazareth. We know that he performed his very first miracle. He turned water into wine in a little town called Cana of Galilee, Right? Verse 45 of the, of the story that we just read, it tells us that Jesus and his disciples journeyed to the south for the feast. They went to the Passover. So this is where you have to kind of piece things together. So they went down south, and you remember, we've already covered some of the details. Jesus went into the temple during the Passover. He cleansed the temple, right? He made a whip of cords, and he went in there, the outer precincts, and, and he drove out the money changers, flipped over the tables, Right? So a lot of people, they have a hard time with this passage, right? Like they, their view of, of, of God, Jesus, he's just loving, kind. That's, that's all he is. Well, no, he, yeah, he's loving and kind, but he's a God of justice, and he has righteous indignation, right? And he's going to go in, and he's going to straighten some things out. Here's what, here's what was going on. Why did he drive them out? They were robbing the people. They were extorting the people. They were, they were turning a place of worship into a place of greed. 
The people were being robbed and extorted, and so Jesus drove them out. It was also in Jerusalem where Jesus met Nicodemus, remember? Pharisee, ruler of the Jews, this, this religious, spiritual man. And they have this conversation, and, and, they, and they talk about being born again, and Nicodemus doesn't understand how can a man be born again, born again physically when he's been born, born, born physically once, right? I was having a hard time getting that out of my mouth, just like Nicodemus was having a hard time understanding it. And pretty much Jesus was like, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you got to be born again. And he was talking about spiritual rebirth, encountering Christ, the gospel, and his heart being made new. So at this point, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes back to Galilee. He makes his way back. He encounters this Samaritan woman. Now this is where we're at in the story. So John gives us a very interesting statement in verse 44. It says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Well, Galilee was the region of the Gentiles. Galilee is where Jesus grew up, Nazareth of Galilee. It's his hometown. He's the hometown kid, right, from Nazareth. He grew up in Galilee. But in verse 45, it says something opposite of what verse 44 says. Verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him. So it kind of seems like a contradiction. Well, well, what's going on, right? Did they welcome him or did they not? When When you piece things together, right, the gospel accounts, it was the religious leaders of the synagogue in Nazareth that rejected Jesus. But it was the people who hung on his every word. It was the people who followed him. It was the people who fell in love with him. It was the people who gladly received him. I mean, even, even Peter on one occasion, no man speaks like this man. He speaks with, with authority. The people received him. John tells us, about the second miracle. The first miracle, remember, Jesus turned water into wine. Can you imagine the wedding party? I mean, people had to have been blown away. The best had been saved for, for last. I mean, Jesus, I mean, you have to understand, in Jewish culture, to run out of wine at a wedding was a no-no. Jesus saved the day. He may have even saved the marriage. Who knows, right? I mean, Jesus stepped in, performs these miracles, and then the second miracle takes place in the same exact town. So Jesus is almost like doubling down. First miracle, I'm going to turn water into wine. Second miracle, same city, same region, a lot of the same people. He doubles down. Second miracle, what does he do? He heals this official son from the point of death. Look at verses 46 and 47. So he came again to Canaan, Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Here's point number one, general principle. No one is exempt from suffering or sorrow. No one is exempt. Even if you come to Christ, you're not exempt from suffering. You're not exempt from sorrow and pain and disappointment. You know, the, the, the word official, maybe in your translation, it might say nobleman. It means relative of the king. It could be translated son of a king. This guy, he was a nobleman. He was an official. Most likely, he was high up in the government. We know that Herod Antipas ruled the region of Galilee. But this man, 
He had position. He had prestige. I think he had popularity. I think he had dough. I think he had power. But here's the deal. Here's what he did not have. He did not have the power to heal his son from the point of death. Sickness and sorrow are no respecter of persons. It comes for everyone. Death comes for everyone. It comes whether you're white, brown, black, red, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you, ri- you live in the U.S. or you live in China or Iraq or, or Australia. Death is no respecter of persons. Death comes uninvited. It's inescapable. It's going to happen to all of us. And you know what? The stats are amazing. One out of one died. No one escapes death. There's been a few people in the Bible that have escaped it, right? Jesus escaped death. He escaped it. Money can buy you a lot of things. This man had money, he had everything, but he was, he was helpless. He couldn't help his son. He had possessions and position, but he couldn't heal his son. No one escapes suffering and sorrow. Job tells us, In chapter 5, verse 7, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You know, when you build a campfire, the sparks fly from the heat. They they fly upward. Job is saying, as sure as the sparks fly upward, man is born for trouble. We realize that. We know that. Because we live in a fallen world. God does not cause sickness. God is not the cause of sorrow. Sin is the cause of sorrow. Here's the reality. We live in a broken world. Before sin entered into the world, there was no disease, sickness, decay, death. But we live in a fallen world. There's, There's evil, there's injustice, there's sin, there's decay, and there is death. But the big question is this. Does God care? Does God care about you? Does he care about your suffering? Is he a personal God? Is he near to you? Does he know your life? Does he know your name? Does he see what's going on in your life? Can or will he help us in difficult days? Does God help us with the problems of our life? Those are the questions I think a lot of people wrestle with. There was a man who wrestled with this years ago. Years ago, there was a rabbi from New York City named Rabbi Kushner. And uh, Rabbi Kushner actually wrote a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I love what R.C. Sproul said when someone asked R.C. Sproul, I don't know, years ago, hey, R.C. Sproul, you know, this pastor, theologian, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? You know what his response was? I haven't met any good people. I mean, that's the reality. We, we want to say, why, why does God allow this trial or that tribulation or, or, or that pain in that good person's life. The reality is, based on the Bible, there's no one good. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've, we've all sinned. No one is good, intrinsically good. We have all fallen and sinned and disobeyed God. Rabbi Kushner wrote this book. It became a bestseller. And he tells him, that, as he wrote the book, he tells of how he watched his son slowly die of a terrible disease. He said when writing the book that he still believed in God, but he no longer believed the same things about God. He said God was limited by the laws of nature and that God was limited by human moral freedom. You know, most Christ followers, we believe, we believe a lot of core essentials, right? Um, 
We believe in core orthodoxy, orthodox Christian teachings. Certain affirmations are, are very clear. We hold on to, right? God is good. God is kind, right? And God is great. God is sovereign. God is in control. But Rabbi Kushner said, well, God could not be both. If he is great, if he's sovereign, then he's not good because he's allowed suffering that he could, and he could stop it if he's great, if he's sovereign. If he is good, then he's not great because suffering is in the world. He said, I will not let go of the goodness of God. So therefore, I believe that God is good but helpless. That's what he said. But you know an amazing thing about the Bible? And especially when you come to a story like this in John 4, John the gospel writer gives us this amazing story and, and he shows us that God is both good and great and that God is not helpless in the face of our suffering. Jesus enters into this man's problem and he solves it with his presence, with his power. He solves this man's problem. Look at verses 48 to 49. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Here's point number two. God does not waste our sorrows. God does not waste our sorrows. You know, sorrows are coming. I mean, Jesus even said, right? The night before he was crucified, he um, had a, a, a band of disciples and they observed the Lord's Supper after he washed their feet and he shared a lot of things with them. But one of the things he said was, in this world you will have tribulation. But then he said, I, but I have overcome the world. Sorrows are gonna come. God's not gonna waste the sorrows in your life. Let me, let me say this. If you're going through pain or you've been through pain or you're getting ready to experience pain, write this down. It's not a fill in the blank, but write it down. There is pain, there is purpose in your pain. There's purpose in your pain. There's purpose in your pain. God is using that pain for a purpose. Sometimes the sorrows of life draw us closer to the heart of God. One of, one of my most favorite stories, it's a tragic story, but it's a powerful story about Horatio Spafford. He was a famous man. He was known for two things, one tragic and one thing that was beautiful. In 1871, the city of Chicago was largely destroyed by a fire. During Reconstruction, Horatio Spafford, this Presbyterian layman who was also a lawyer, he was very successful. He was a businessman from Chicago. He sent his wife and four daughters on a trip to Europe. And the family traveled to New York to board the ship. And last minute business obligations caused Horatio to send his wife and four daughters on ahead and he would join them later. Horatio Spafford returned to Chicago in the middle of a dark November night, November 22nd. The ship that he placed his wife and four daughters on was struck by the Lockern, an English vessel in the Atlantic Ocean. The ship sank in 12 minutes. 226 people perished. Miss Spafford saw all four of her precious daughters swept away by angry waves. A fallen mass knocked her unconscious. 
But she was rescued and taken to Wells with the rest of the survivors. From Wells, Miss Spafford cabled her husband with two words, saved alone. Four daughters had perished in the shipwreck. Horatio Spafford left Chicago immediately and booked passage on the next available ship to Wells to join his wife. Along the way, he asked the captain to notify him when they reached a place in the Atlantic where his daughters perished. It was just before two o'clock in the morning when a steward knocked on his door. The captain wanted you to know that in 10 minutes, we'll be at your spot. Mr. Spafford quickly dressed and went to the bow of the ship. As they passed over the watery graves of his four precious daughters, with a broken heart knowing the Savior's love for him, he wrote on the back of an envelope these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford, in the midst of tragedy, his daughters perishing, he found comfort in the very one that could bring comfort to his soul. We have found the comfort that only Christ can bring, that everyone longs for. Everyone longs for this comfort that only Christ can bring into their lives. You know, God is so great that he takes the tragedies of our lives and, and he weaves it all together for our good and for his glory. You know, in the good times, in, the, in days of prosperity, we tend not to look up. We, 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 we tend to enjoy the, the goodies of life, the blessings that God pours into our lives, right? We're, we're content, we're satisfied, we don't have any immediate needs. Days of prosperity can drive a wedge between you and God. But during the tough, tough days, during, during difficult times, it is easy when, when pain cascades into our lives, when, when, when trials drop on us and like boulders and they're heavy and it's, they're soul crushing, it's, it's easier to look up. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, pain is God's megaphone. Pain is God's megaphone. He shouts to us in our pain, but he whispers to us in our pleasure. It's amazing when we face difficulty, we start listening to God. Isn't it amazing? When, when, when life is not going good, maybe at work, marriage, parenting, relationships, in-laws, church, whatever, when life is not good and things seem all out of whack, right, God uses those circumstances to draw us closer to him. You know, when, when problems come into your life, you can either get better or you can get bitter. You have, you have one of two options. You can get better, you can allow God to change you and and refine you, make you more like Christ, or you can allow the events and the circumstances to make you bitter and angry, constantly asking God, why? Why me? Why now? Why not them? You know, this official, this nobleman, he obviously heard about Jesus. Somehow he heard about him. So either, either A, he was with the, the, the crowds that, the, uh, of Galilee who traveled to Jerusalem, and he saw miracles performed, or he heard about Jesus, he lived in the same town, Cain of Galilee, and he heard about Jesus turning water into wine, right? That miracle happened. And now his son is sick, and here's what he does. I, I want to give you just a quick geography point. From Capernaum to Cain of Galilee, it's 20 miles, roughly. Now, there's no cars, right? right? So, like, 
I don't know, donkey foot. I don't know. He went 20 miles. That's like going from here to Rancho Bernardo and all the way back. So he made the, he made the journey because he heard about Jesus. Maybe he was at the wedding. Who knows? Maybe the wedding party. Maybe the, the bride, the groom told him about this, this, this miracle that took place at, at their wedding. And so the man comes to Jesus and he says, come, heal my son. Come with me to Capernaum. And what does Jesus do? When you first read it, you're like, wow. That, that seems like a scathing rebuke. Like, some people think he was directing it towards the crowd, possibly. He, Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus has become this religious sideshow. People are looking for Jesus. They want the benefits. They want the goodies. They want the magic tricks. They, they, they want Jesus to, you know, maybe provide for them. It, it, you know, they want Jesus to be like this heavenly sugar daddy in their life. And I think Jesus is calling them out. You won't believe. You won't believe that I'm the son of God. You won't believe that I'm the chosen one, the Messiah, unless you see more signs. It's like, it's like Jesus is like, I'm showing you signs. I'm, I'm showing you. I'm, I'm proving my deity. I'm proving my Messiahship. Do you see his response in verse 49? How the official response? He doesn't respond to Jesus' statement. So he doesn't get caught. He doesn't, caught, he doesn't get caught in like, he doesn't debate Jesus about motives. He just pleads with him. He just pleads with him. I just want my son to live. He says, sir, calm down before my child dies. He has this great need in his life. And he has such faith because he believes that this man, Jesus, could meet this need in his life. What great need do you have in your life? What great need do you have in your life? Maybe there's a need in your life. Maybe the, there's a, a career move that you want to make, right? That's a, that's a big need. Maybe you're, you're seeking a promotion at work. Maybe you're praying for, for God to open your womb. You're, you're wanting to get pregnant. That's a big need. You're waiting on the Lord. Maybe, maybe your life is, 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 is a financial disaster. I mean, the, the, the debts and the bills are, are piling up. And, and you can't see beyond the bills. Maybe you're seeking God for wisdom and guidance concerning a, a mate, a, a, someone to marry. Maybe you have a loved one that doesn't know Christ. Someone in your oikos that you've been praying for. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks and it needs to be mended. Maybe you have a wayward child that has just walked away from the church, walked away from the gospel, walked away from Jesus. Maybe you've got a broken relationship with someone you need to fix. Actually, you need God to fix. You know, I heard someone say moments of great need. Moments of great need uncomplicates life. That's a good way of putting it. You know, when we experience pain and disappointment or we experience, like we, we have these great needs, it allows us to filter life's greatest priorities. You know, sickness, sorrow, facing death, it shapes us. Pain brings us brings life into focus. If you were given six months to live, how would you live your life? If you went to the doctor today, maybe you're experiencing some, some sort of pain, they do x-rays, doctor comes in, says I have some really tough news to share with you. 
you have cancer, stage four, terminal, maybe six months. In that moment, how would the reality of that, the pain of knowing that, shape your life? How would you allow that to reshape, to realign, to, to, to focus what matters most in your life? Live your life today like you've only been given six months. And if you do that, your mindset will change. You know, God did not cause this man's sorrow, this, his son's sickness. He doesn't cause our sorrows. He allows things to happen. I mean, with Job, remember the story of Job? Job, terrible disaster. You know, servants coming to him. Hey, children are dead. He loses his health. He loses all of his wealth, his real estate, his, his own wife. His own wife is um, evil in her heart and says, Job, curse God and die. His own wife turns on him, doesn't have his back, doesn't respect him. Job loses it all. God allowed Satan to bring some trials and tribulations into Job's life. I like to say that Satan is on a long leash. God allowed it, which means Satan's on a leash. He doesn't have full control, full authority. God allowed Satan to, to do some things in his life. I mean, really, God said, hey, you got free reign. Just don't take his life. God uses sorrows to teach us to trust him. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he was a pastor in London, and more than 100 years ago, uh, he pastored this big church, famous pastor. Everyone knows about him. On one Sunday morning, he decided to let one of his interns uh, in the church lead the prayer that day. And, and the young guy, man, he was so excited. He's like, man, that, now's my chance, right, to get in front of the big crowd, you know. And he starts his prayer, oh, great God of the universe. And then he launches into a sermon. You ever been there where you're like, buddy, you're supposed to be praying, not preaching. Come on, man. About five minutes into this theological treatise, Spurgeon walks to the pulpit, puts his arm around the young man and says, young man, call him father and tell him what you want. Isn't that good? God is a father. It's the greatest image that we have of, of God in the Bible. Jesus told us that God is a father. And what does a father do? A father provides, a father protects, a father is present, a father loves unconditionally. A father guides and directs. A father is there. A father wants best for his children. That's what God wants best for us. He's a good, good father. When tragedy strikes, God is a father. When tragedy strikes, God is not punishing you because God doesn't punish his children. He refines and shapes his children through trials. But God doesn't say, well, you did that, so I'm bringing the stick. He does discipline us if we sin. So in one way, he, he does bring the stick. He takes us out to the whooping shed and gives, gives us a good one. A holy spanking. Some of you don't like that. How come you don't like that? That's like in the Bible. God disciplines those whom he loves. If you don't want to be disciplined, then you don't want to be loved by God. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We don't know why things happen. 
We don't know why God allows trials and, and tribulations. We don't know the outcome, but we do know this. Here's what we do know. All things work together for good. Lean over to your neighbor and say, write that down. All things work together for good. Right there. All things work together for good. All right. Thank you for three of you doing that. Appreciate that. That's good. All things. It doesn't say some things, most things, many things. All things. All things work together for good. The promise is for everyone who loves God. So thank you for that quick correction. It was on purpose. I was waiting for someone. I was waiting for someone to correct me. There was only one person that corrected me. Some of you were thinking, promises for everyone. It's only for those who love God. That's the promise. It's only for those who love God. The hard part is God gets to determine what the good is. All things work together for good. We don't determine it. God does. The good is not always our comforts, not always our convenience. The purpose is to make us like Jesus. Here's the thing. God allows things to happen to refine, to reshape, to, to work rough edges off of us, right? Let me give you some examples. The Bible's filled with one another's. Love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, right? All these things, right? All these one another's. At least well over 50 one another's. The one another's are in the Bible for a reason. Because we, as believers, have to do life with one another. And when we're doing life with one another, sometimes we are not loving or we're not forgiving or we're not serving, right? How do you learn to forgive if someone doesn't offend you? I find it amazing to me when people get offended, they get offended by someone that hurt them. It's human nature. But what surprises me is sometimes they take the level of, of offense to a whole nother level and they're like, I'm leaving the church. And it's like, you can leave the church over someone that just hurt you. Well, the next church you go to, you're going to be hurt there too. So you're going to have to leave that church. You're going to have to be a perpetual church hopper shopper because you're constantly going to be offended. Discipleship is about forgiving one another. It's about saying, hey, I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I did that. Can you forgive me? And the spiritual maturity is saying, I forgive you. How do you learn to be patient if there's no irritations in life? If, if, if like, how do you learn to, I had another example, but I can't find it. How do you learn to trust unless God allows trials in your life? How do you learn to trust God if you don't experience and walk through trials? Okay, we gotta move, we gotta move. Verses 49 and 50. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And notice what it says. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Point number three, faith is often exercised in the absence of tangible proof. Jesus said, go, the man went home. Servants come, they have this conversation about the son feeling better. He realizes that Jesus healed his son instantly. The seventh hour, 1 p.m., he connects the dots. Faith acts first and then there's results. Faith is trusting God whom you cannot see for things that have not yet happened. That's what faith is. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now notice there are two identical statements that define faith. 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is living in a hope that is so real, it gives absolute assurance. It is the existence of things that we cannot see. It's believing that which is unseen. If we could see it, it wouldn't be faith. I like what one author said about faith. Living a life of faith is like as you move forward, a curtain moves with you. That's faith. You can't see over the curtain. You can't see under the curtain. You can't see around the curtain. But as you're walking by faith, God is moving with you. The curtain is moving. And things are being unfolded one moment at a time. Faith is not like the faith of the world. Some, some wishful longing that something's, something's going to come to pass in an uncertain tomorrow. You know, like the world. They have this wishful thinking today that the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl. It's wishful thinking. I mean... I think it's been ordained before the foundation of the world that the Niners will win today. I just believe that, right? I'm joking. But what I'm saying is, here's what I'm saying. Faith is believing God whom you cannot see for things that have not yet happened. Biblical hope is the unshakable confidence in the promises of God. We can have hope in Christ because of his promises. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let me say it in a positive way. Faith pleases God. How, how do we, you know, stepping out by faith, sometimes, we, sometimes in life we're waiting on God. We're, we want a sign. We want this. What about just stepping out by faith? Just taking a step forward. God, I, you know, I'm just going to move. I'm just going to move. I'm going to trust you. Guide, direct, show me. Open doors, close doors. You give me wise counsel from other people. Show me in your word what your will is. But God, I'm just going to move forward. And as I'm moving forward, show me your will. So many times we just, we get, we get paralyzed by fear. And, and we don't want to do anything. Because what if I'm outside of God's will? No, walk by faith. That's what Habakkuk, the Jewish prophet in the Old Testament said, the just shall live by faith. Let's look at verse 50 again. Remember what Jesus said? Go your son live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Here's point four. Genuine faith always produces obedience. It always produces obedience. He believed and he went his way. Right? He must have thought, if I leave without Jesus, will he heal my son? I can tell you right now, I'm in that camp. If I was him, I'd be like, no, 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 you, you got to come with me. You got to come with me. Like, I need you to touch him, pray over him, right? I believe you can heal him, but you got to come with me. That's what I would be doing. This guy must have been thinking, well, if I don't leave, maybe I'll insult the one who can heal my son. He obeyed the word of Jesus. He believed the person of Jesus. His faith resulted in obedience. The greatest example of faith in the Old Testament is Abraham. Abraham is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, which really is the hall of faith. It's the heroes of the faith. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And check this out. He went out not knowing where he was going. How do you go out not knowing where you're going? Like God called 
Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, modern-day Iraq, to go to the land of Canaan, right? To go to a land. And that land, modern-day Israel. So God calls them to go, leave country, leave kin, leave everything familiar, and I'm going to show you. And he makes the trek hundreds of miles away. He went not knowing where, and later in life, God made a promise that he would give him a son. Remember this? He waited not knowing when. God made promises to Abraham and Sarah. We know that, you know, they, they laughed, right? They're advanced in age. They're senior adults going on senior adult cruises. They're enjoying life, you know? And he's like 100. She's like 90. God's, they waited 25 years for Isaac. That's a long time. That's a long time to wait for something. Now, they got ahead of themselves a little bit, and he got himself into a little trouble when he brought on a girlfriend on the side. He brought on Hagar. Just the name Hagar. Not good, right? You don't bring her on, right? So it caused a lot of problems. Even to this day, you have Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac traces back to, right, Israel. Abraham were descendants of Aram through faith. Ishmael traces its way back to Islam. So even to this day, back then, there was issues. Even today, there are issues. But the point is, Abraham was a man of faith. He, he obeyed. Just like this official, Jesus said, your son lives. What did he do? He went. He left. He obeyed. He walked home. Look at verse Verses 51 to 54, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew, I think that's so key, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. He himself believed, notice that, the word believe, twice, it's been hit twice now, and all his household, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So twice the passage says he believed. What did he believe? He believed in Jesus because he went to him. He believed, the, the story says, he believed in the word of Jesus, and he believed in the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Does God still heal, heal people today? Absolutely. Does God heal every believer every time? No. Why? I don't, I don't know. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, you know, scholars think that he had some sort of an eye condition. He prayed numerous times for the Lord to remove it, remove the storm in the flesh. Did God remove it? He did not. And it was to teach Paul that God's grace was sufficient for him, that in his weakness, God's strength was being manifested. And so the story really gives us, some, gives us some powerful truths. Number one, God is good and God is great. No matter what comes into your life, God is with you. You know, two miracles happened that day. The son was saved from physical death and the father was saved from spiritual death. The father was made new. And did you catch what it said? It says that, and he himself believed and 
his household. The Greek word for household is oikos. The gospel spreads in relationships. Here's this official, powerful position, prestige, popularity, money, power. His son is at death's door. He goes to Jesus. He has this great need. He believes Jesus can meet it. Jesus says, your son will live. He believes in the person, the presence, the power of Jesus. His son is saved. He believes. He becomes a believer. And then it says, and his household. Those are three powerful words. Christ changed his life, and then his family was forever changed. Life is short. Life is really, really short. God maybe gives us 60, 70, maybe 80, 90 years at best. If you got someone in your household that doesn't know Jesus, fast and pray, ask God for, for him to open wide some doors and just be bold and go to that loved one and say, I gotta tell you the gospel. I gotta tell you what Christ has done in my life. And just know that that burden is not on you. You're called to share, it's God who saves. Maybe God wants you to learn to trust him today. God doesn't wanna waste your sorrows. Give your pain, give your sorrows to him and he'll change your life. Let's pray.